Hey guys, how's it going? Um, usually we start these, you know, just by starting and then we, we put in the descriptor who the person we're talking to is. Um, but I think in this case, uh, I want to I wanna talk about John, who we're speaking to today, Dr. Stratziotis, because I think his background does play uh, well into the topic that we're discussing. In other words, there's some, there's some uh, speciality or specialty, I should say, uh, that John brings to this table. So uh, John, besides being one of my closest uh, friends for a long time now, um, is very long time, a very long time. Too, too long, actually, is a, well, not too long. Too long in that we're getting old. That's what I meant. I don't yeah, mean that exactly. I want to end the friendship due to any other circumstances. Right. But anyway, uh, John is a physiotherapist as well as a doctor of chiropractic. As well, John uh, majored in biochemistry at McMaster University uh, in his undergrad. Did I sum that up pretty well? That's pretty much all of it. Yeah, right? that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so John, he's also a, a published researcher. He has uh, chapters uh, in books. Um, pertaining to fascia, pertaining to connective tissue, uh, dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, besides all that, John's also one of the uh, functional range systems instructors. Um, he's uh, currently residing in Greece and has been for, for most of his professional career, actually. Um, and the reason why uh, John and I decided, decided to do this conversation uh, is because for those of you who don't know or who are not manual therapists, if you're trainers here, this this is going to be very helpful to you. But if you're a manual therapist, you might be more familiar or closer to the quote unquote controversy um, that's currently surrounding uh, soft tissue um, and the idea of you know what soft tissue is doing, if anything, um, and the concept as to whether or not there's actually I would say a strong um, argument out in uh, you know, Instagram land, these aren't in, in any reputable sources where people will say things like soft tissue is unnecessary. And th there's a whole bunch of misunderstandings as to why they're saying that. And, and really what this boils down to, in my opinion, and, I'm, and John will, will get your opinion shortly, is um, a, a, a bunch of people throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, in that, you know, we have a certain amount of research. And with that research, you can conceivably make one conclusion which pushes you one way, or you can make another conclusion which pushes you another way. Of course, we're under the the uh, on the side that's saying there's more than enough research to demonstrate the efficacy of uh, soft tissue. And it's funny, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, that a lot of these same people who are uh, speaking about how uh, you know therapy is not useful in terms of soft tissue, they'll often also say, "Well, we do use some soft tissue therapy." So. Um, it, it's a it's a crazy it's a, a crazy controversy in my opinion, uh, but I thought we would we would go through and and go through a technical podcast, which this will be. Uh, we're going to go really in depth, um, and what we're going to cover in this first part, let's call it, because we might do a second part to this, um, is the 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 concept of fibrosis um, and the concept of tissue healing. Um, and the inadequacies of tissue healing, which may lead to the need or to the, uh, I don't know if need is a too strong word, but that would lead to the, the, the conclusion that soft tissue therapy might be effective um, for, for the patients uh, who have these problems. Did I sum that up? That's pretty much what we want to talk about. I think fibrosis 
and yeah. start, which you quote unquote is the is the main talk to hear. Yeah, that's going to be the topic. I mean, I'm going to you know kind of from there you know diverge to other things, but I mean the big thing is going over what the research tells us. Um, and I mean you kind of hit it on the on the head there, the nail on the head by saying that. You know, people just kind of look at the abstracts, they look at the conclusions, they just fire off, um, you know, um, conclusions, and they really sometimes don't look into the article. People claim to be evidence-based. Um, we know now that evidence-based medicine is, you know, is composed of three things. It's the research is one component of it. Um, clinical, uh, I'm going to say expertise, not experience, but expertise, and experience falls under the umbrella of expertise. Um, is the second component. And the third component is patient values, which I think most people, and I've talked about this in the past, most people tend to neglect this. Mm -hmm. They tend to just kind of look at the research and what's out there and they kind of group people into, you know, this, this person's a supraspinatus tendinopathy, this person's a low back pain problem. Mm -hmm. If you don't really kind of sit and you know, go through a history process and interview the patient, Mm -hmm. Take a look at you know what what the patient's values are. Sometimes um, I think that's I think that's a good point that you brought up because a lot of these same people that we talk about online, it's almost like they I, I would assume if you spoke to them about evidence based medicine, they might list off the the three things that you list, listed off. Uh, however, in the discussions that you see, it, it seems to only be the first one, whereby they're blindly looking for uh, a randomized controlled trial or some study of the sort which is gifting them the answer that they're looking for, ignoring those other two categories that are equally as important in evidence-based medicine, especially when pertaining to the uh, clinical care of a, of a human being. Right, right. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't forget, like, you know, when, when you have that person in front of you, you know, patient expectations nowadays, we, we tend to, to look at, you know, what the patient expectations are. And we see that many times it's the number one predictor of outcomes. Absolutely. So many times, a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, patient values will kind of uh, decide uh, what the outcome is. And we're going to, you know, hopefully we're going to get into outcome measures. Um, yeah, we will. A little bit and we'll talk about that. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, that's going to be also very important. You know, I don't want people to get confused, though. I don't want them to think <clears throat> that we're somehow um, speaking less of our argument that soft tissue is necessary. I, I want to get into the actual mechanics the cellular biophysics of uh, force and, and how tissues respond to force and how um, we can use application of force in order to guide tissue healing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not going to fall back on, you know, there's plenty of research that we can go into on the therapeutic value of touch, which is completely right. outside the hard biomechanical evidence. But I, I actually... I don't, we don't need to go into that research to justify right. soft tissue. It's already justified in that regard, which is why some of these, I don't want to call them scientists, but some of these uh, Twitter scientists um, uh, will say that I do some soft tissue work, but you know, it's not that important and they get to the important stuff. Um, everyone knows, even by being a clinician for a week, when you, when you, when you utilize therapeutic touch, uh, the, the benefit is, is quite obvious. And that goes into the second line of research, which you said clinical expertise, which is often ignored. Right. Uh, now, I will start by saying that I'm fully aware that some of these people online are, are just trying to get clicks. And there's always the conversation about clickbait and, and contrarianism. And I know that right now, contrarianism is a, is, a, is a big thing in society and people can make a living off of shitting on other people. 
Um, but we're not going to we're not going to justify what we're saying based on um, based on soft evidence. Let's call it. We, we do want to justify this based on hard evidence because there's there's more than enough. So I guess I'll start off. I, I usually don't have a list, but we did put together a list of things we want to talk about. And for the most part, I'm going to pretend like I, like I'm. We've been speaking about this for I don't know how many years now. How many years we've been doing this and teaching all over the world. So we've had these conversations. Um, we've read all of the literature, we've dissected the literature, we've had conversations about the literature, which by the way is funny. It almost seems like some people online feel that we don't have access to the same literature they do or that right. we're missing something, whereas we, that's all we do is, is spend right. dissecting. So I'm pretty sure we've read what you've read. You know what I mean? Like I, I, right. hate, I hate to sound arrogant, but if it's out there, we've, you know, between all of the people in our system, we've, we've consumed it and we've digested it. And it's all about the conclusions you make. But before I really pass the question specifically to you, I, I do want to talk about one concept uh, that's in your wheelhouse, but it's also very much in my wheelhouse because I've done a lot of, um, of study of evolutionary biology. And the, the one argument that I've seen come up lately is, is such a, it, it, it requires such a misunderstanding of evolutionary biology, which I I almost want to say that the people who say these have never actually studied this topic. And that is this, this bizarre concept that tissue heals on its own. And, right. and I'm going to, I'm going to try to try to get into the heads of, of these people making this argument. The idea is that because we've evolved so much um, that we should somehow inherently have the ability to heal tissue following injury um, without any consequence. And, and that's just based on, I guess, the amount of time that we've been evolving for. And why this is such a, a bad concept is it, it completely misunderstands evolution in thinking that evolution has a goal in mind. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter that evolution does not have a goal in mind, it's just based on selective pressures. So it's not like the system is trying to get better at healing soft tissue injuries, nor is a human being a um, you know further along in the evolutionary scale because it's going towards a, an ideal state. Um, you know, for example, bipedalism—the idea that bipedalism was bringing us towards an ideal state—is incorrect because it, it's just the state that we got based on the circumstances that that were you know playing out in the natural selective process. So. The idea that our tissue healing is so optimized at this point that we we don't need to help it at all really negates, I would say, 99% of research that has come out uh, historically on soft tissue injury. Um, it, and, and you might want to speak to that too, but it, it's not like there's a uh, a paucity of research on problemat problems that occur post-surgery for you know supraspinatus tears or how supraspinatus tears heal on their own, or, um, you know, there's so much like clinical as well as cellular research on what happens to tissue when it's left to its own accord in regard to tissue healing. Um, so maybe you want to speak about that and the idea that this is not ideal in any sense of the word. It, it is an ideal. I mean, if you take a look at the research and I mean, this, you know, we see this throughout the years that one of the, the best ways to, to um, get tissue to, to adapt is to load it. And tissue responds to loading. 
and mechanical loading and loading, you know, um, in specific directions uh, and specific amounts and volume and how how intense the uh, the load is. That's all has to be done in a progressive way in order to change what that tissue is going to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, research studies show if you just let that tissue just sit there, it's not going to change. So what you're going to do is you're going to get a lot of connective tissue, and we're going to get into fibrosis uh, probably later, uh, in the conversation. So you get more connective tissue laid down, but it doesn't get, get laid down in a way that's going to help that tissue become better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it, it's really laying it down in a way uh, to patchwork the problem um, to be to be dealt with at a later date, which ma which makes perfect sense from the evolutionary standpoint. Um, and one thing that I like to explain to people is conceivably uh, the ways to, to improve your chances of avoiding injury uh, would have been under higher selective pressure than ways to heal injuries once injuries occur. And, and that's just that's just how evolutionary wor evolution works because once something gets injured, of course, the chances of that creature not going forward in life goes higher. So a lot of that selective pressure would have been gone because once injuries occur, it makes you vulnerable to further injuries. Whereas if there was something, for example, that would improve your chances of winning in combat, let's say that you had a sharper talon, or let's say that you were able to, to be bipedal for a longer period of time during combat to, to use your arms or the larger animal or the bigger teeth, so the things that would help you in the, you know, in, in, in hurting or in, in damaging other um, uh, animals would have been under higher selective pressure than the ability to heal because the ability to heal happens over a period of time or it doesn't happen at all. Um, and I hope that people understand that concept that the selective pressure will be higher on the other side. So with regards to tissue healing, if you look at tissue healing as a whole, what you see is, yes, it's an amazing system. Um, it's able to heal a lot of a lot of soft tissue injury. And if you look across species, a lot of species have this ability. However, the quality of the tissue which is provided in absence of directed measures to improve healing, uh, you realize that it's really piss poor quality tissue. Um, and we're going to get into that the this 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 idea that when things heal on their own, they don't necessarily heal optimally. Uh, and I think this is a good time to bring in, there's an evolutionary biologist by the name of uh, Paul um, Bratterman. And he says, I'm going to read this quote, evolution has nothing to do with progress. Most evolution doesn't have anything to do with adaptation and is perfectly possible for a change that is worse than useless to spread through a population. Now that tells us that the evolutionary process ha has no goal in mind. And it, it was really, it really just, deals with the environmental pressures that are put on it at that time. And oftentimes these environmental pressures might lead to the selection of something which is suboptimal in the grand scheme of things, but it might've been optimal in that particular area of time or, or place in time in order to allow that, that, that species to continue. So it, it, it's, it, it really is a, a general misunderstanding to think that evolution had a goal and that somehow we're working towards this optimal way to heal tissue, because that's just really not how evolution works. And, and I just wanted to uh, put that out there because it parlays us into the next topic, um, which has been a past the, okay, go ahead. 
You know what I'm going to say to this is um, this reminds me of um, you know a study that kind of people tend to bring up a lot, um, and the reason why they, they do this, you know, and if we want to relate this to, to athletics, you know, there, there's a study by Rurnik that's out there that um, was a good study on imaging, and it showed that um, just because there's a, a high intensity signal on MRI, uh, that's not going to um, stop a player from returning to play. And we, you know, obviously we do know uh, now that you know, imaging and, um, and structure um, do not really always the, the function. Mm -hmm. a, a, a study that, you know, that was done by Rurnik, um, they looked at high intensity signals and, you know, they, they looked at the fact that there were athletes that returned to play uh, even with high intensity signals. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so based on this, uh, people are saying now, you know, it's one of the conclusions of the article was that uh, because there's fibrosis there, uh, people can return to uh, to play. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that the high intensity signal that was shown on MRI, and this was something that the authors themselves uh, noted uh, as far as one of the limitations of the study. At the end of the article. At the end of the article. Most people don't get to, but carry on. Mm -hmm. So what the authors themselves noted was the fact that um, the there was acute strains of the hamstrings, grade one and grade two, and what they did was they did PRP. Uh, injection. So they um, they mentioned the fact that the high intensity signal was actually um, edema from the injections, and that fibrosis usually is more of a moderate intensity signal. And so if you if you take a look at what this article uh, concludes, is the authors themselves conclude that the low intensity signal, so the signals that indicate that there's fibrosis. Uh, might still be, uh, you know, related to an uh, increased re-injury risk. Mm. Right? That's a huge deal because I've heard this this article being thrown around as the reason why, you know, it doesn't matter what 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 state your tissues are in as long as it scars over, you'll get you'll you'll. But I mean, that's huge because that can that that admission by the author can actually negate the entire conclusion. As it's laid out in the in the summary at the beginning of the article, which is crazy, right? It's yeah. just it's so dangerous to have people skimming literature with a little bit of, of knowledge. I mean that 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 really runs into a problem because a lot of these people, you know, oh, I read that. I read the last article I read. That means everything else that I read is garbage. And the same thing happened with stretching, and you know this to be a, a fact. Right. There's a little bit of research saying that. You know, stretching before injury, not a little bit, quite a bit, stretching before injury doesn't, uh, sorry, stretching before activity doesn't prevent injuries. And then somehow that got translated into there's no need for stretching ever, no matter the circumstance. Right. We went all the way to the other end. Yeah. It's like as soon as something comes out, it just, it just draws people that way or it draws people that way, which is, I guess, this clickbait society that we were talking about before, where the coolest thing to put on is something which is, either shitting on someone else or putting out a conclusion from an article that that makes it seem like everything we learned before that article was somehow uh, negated now. Right. Um, and uh, it's interesting because since you mentioned stretching, because I will probably mention this later on when, when we mm -hmm. talk about possibly soft tissue work and, you know, how we can possibly affect the, uh, the fibrotic tissue. There is research showing that stretching does affect fibrosis. Mm -hmm. So it affects the some of the inflammatory agents. Mm -hmm. uh, 
during fibrosis. So, you know, I, well, not, not to mention that there's some um, research discussing the idea that stretching might start the process of, you know, sarcomerogenesis. Um, Correct. Which, again, which again is, is, is a, is part of the healing process. It's part of it, it, but it's just ignore, but yeah, there, there again is an example of this tendency to, to skim articles and then it's almost, it, you can look at research in two different ways. I've always said, you can either listen to what someone else says and then try to find stuff that shits all over that person's opinion. So you can look at it in a negative light, or you can read the article and kind of put it into this. What does this tell me about the grand scheme uh, of things? You know what I mean? And it's, and, and that's the difference between how people, I, I use the example of like the Q angle in your knee. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and you know, there's research that will say, I, I don't know, I don't remember the exact, but there's, re there's research that'll say, you know, in a, in a population of this many people, the increased Q angle, you know, they had an increased Q angle and it did not lead to knee problems in, you know, 53% of this population. But that means in the other, uh, in the other people, it might've, but because the conclusion hits that barrier of no, this is, that becomes the conclusion that is blanketed across everyone all the time. I mean, there's research that demonstrates that having a, a gut or being overweight doesn't lead to low back pain. But right. if, if you look at that research in another light, you realize that what they're saying is, is in the things people studied, it's the percentage. It's just, you know, in this particular study, 51% of the people, it didn't matter. That means in 49%, it could. And, and, and that's also asking, you're asking the question is only being overweight the problem, but that's not what anybody's saying. Right. And, and I now, think, yeah. Now, you know, there's more research coming out now saying that since you mentioned obesity, the fact that fatty tissue, you're going to get more inflammation. So those people then that have, you know, chronic issues with uh, either joint issues or soft tissue problems, like a low back pain issue yeah, uh, because of, of the uh, uh, fatty tissue. So, yeah. I mean, you can't go one way and then go 100 degrees the other way uh, every, time, every time something different comes up, right? So you need to kind of, we've talked about this in the past, mm -hmm. like a bird's eye view of the re research, mm -hmm. taking a look at everything and kind of using logic, uh, mm -hmm. even evidence-based medicine and, you know, research isn't based on rules. It's based on logic. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of taking a look at everything and taking a look at the research and, and getting a bird's eye view of everything and then using logic to um, decipher and make, come up with, uh, with a conclusion, depending on the person that you have in front of you. Because yeah, it always goes back to, like I said before, the person that you have in front of you, right? It's an N equals one situation where um, you, you take a, a history and you take a look at, at the person that you have in front of you, and that's what you're going to base your treatment on, obviously based on uh, research, expertise, and uh, patient values. Well, I think we can both agree that the world could use a little more understanding of how science should be utilized at this point in time. And that, that brings me to what I was like, whatever someone said, like if I say something online and then someone takes that, you can find an article which will go against what I said, right? But that's also a lack of understanding of the scientific method because you're not supposed to believe in scientists. You're supposed to believe in science. And the fact of the matter is you can find any scientist that will justify whatever it is that you're saying. But the right. idea is to look at science as a whole and, 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 and deduce a logical conclusion from what the science tells you. And what the science doesn't tell you is the answer. 
And it never was supposed to tell you the answer. You're supposed to be taking this information, accumulating in your brain, and then making an argument based on the accumulated evidence and how it's interpreted. No, no one is going to give you, no one's going to gift you the answer you're looking for, especially in our profession. Because right. I mean, man, our profession, you know, there's research for, you know, going back however many years uh, with regards to soft, to soft tissue management, but really our profession research hasn't exploded in, in the, in the, the ways that we're discussing. It's only been the last 40 years, maybe 50 years. I mean, the idea of mechanotransduction, the idea of cell to cell signaling, uh, the understanding as to what force does uh, in cells. And I, and I think that it's very easy to go to PubMed and type in, uh, you know, soft tissue for this injury enter and not see an answer and not see an article and go, oh, there's no evidence. But that's, again, complete misunderstanding as to how evidence is used, um, as well as a misunderstanding as to how easy or difficult evidence is to accumulate in a profession like ours, where, where you said the patient actually matters too. So a lot of the times in the paucity of randomized control trials for the exact thing you're looking for, you have to generate an argument based on basic science, based on first principles. And if you base your argument based on first principles, it's actually, in my opinion, very difficult to argue against the idea that soft tissue therapy would be a beneficial addition to right. the process of managing a client. And I said addition because under no circuit, never in our history did we ever say that rubbing someone passively is ever enough. Nor did we ever say that rubbing someone in a single session will lead to lasting change. If anything, we've said the exact opposite. I've said year in and year out, give me research that demonstrates that you can put one input into tissue and that, that leads to a lasting result. And you can't find that evidence because it doesn't exist. So right. the first thing to blow out of the water is if anybody is confused into thinking that we think that when someone comes in and they're in pain, that we can somehow rub away the knots or break up the fascia or remove the adhesions. That is not the, the pile of shit that we were laying on. Uh, and and we, we never were. Never said that's never. right. Never said that. I mean, you know, breaking up adhesions is not is something that we've, we've never talked about. Right? Yeah. We've always talked about the fact that, you know, we don't fix anything. We're just part of the process of changing things. Exactly. And trying to use tools in a, in a very scientific matter, including manual therapy, including soft tissue work, mm -hmm. um, in order to, to, you know, help along in that process. And we've been saying, and then, you know, people nowadays, they, they, there's this, this, uh, this other crazy line of thinking where, yeah, well, that's right. All you have to do is, is work, get strong, as if getting strong fixes everything. And, and that's, you know, it, yes, it's true. I would say the, the, the strongest signal in, in the ongoing health and maintenance of someone's tissues is going to be force inputs by way of exercise. But the idea that the exercise can just randomly be exercise can only be concluded if you don't understand how cells uh, understand their environment. It, it's very specific as we're going to get into. It's not like these things are just haphazardly, you know, laying down tissue in whatever manner. It's, it's a very specific process, process, whatever you want to say, um, that I think it, it deserves looking into. I mean, it deserves this, this amount of attention um, to be given to it. So let's, let's start with that. So 
first off, let's categorize things. So the idea of an adhesion, I'm, we're not going to talk about this. There's no such thing as an adhesion that's perceptible under human touch. I mean, conceivably, an adhesion would be a piece of collagen which is laid down and, you know, some haphazard manner, and the idea that someone can feel this piece of collagen and then just, just you know, understand the directionality of it or the texture of it based on touch, batshit crazy. That, that that doesn't make any sense. So let's let's talk about what actually happens, which is fibrosis. So, I mean, crazy question, and I know this might sound crazy to someone like you who has studied this for so many years, um, but this is legitimately something that you see online. Does fibrosis exist? Without laughing your way through this, can you somehow describe why that is such a, 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 a inherently crazy question to ask? Okay, so I mean, fi fibrosis, um, you know, does exist. Um, it, it is one of those histological processes that happen in our body following an injury. So any type of injury from you know simple strains and contusions. Um, you know, to more severe uh, trauma, like, um, you know, tendon tear or a, or a ligament tear. So if we were to define fibrosis, fibrosis is um, the abnormal, um, sometimes chronic. So uh, it becomes, uh, you know, chronic in uh, pathological conditions, mm -hmm. uh, over proliferation of the extracellular matrix, right? So the extracellular matrix is in all of its components. So, uh, you know, we're talking about cellular components uh, as well as protein components. So in the cellular components, we're looking at stuff like one of the uh, important cells, I guess, in connective tissue being fibroblasts. And when we're talking about proteins, we're talking about all the other stuff that's found within the ECM. So collagen fibers, elastin, uh, reticular fibers, those types of things, glycosamine and and the rest of that stuff. So um, in the long run, so if you're taking a look at, you know, uh, long-standing fibrosis, which like I said before, in severe cases, it becomes pathological, but in general, fibrosis can interfere with, you know, tissue regeneration, um, you know, there could be a decrease in function, like I mentioned before, um, and it, it's going to alter for sure the environment uh, of the tissue, uh, which again, it's going to increase susceptibility to a, a re-injury. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> when we say fibrosis, like we know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. What's it made of, John? Like, what is what do we mean by fibrosis? So you said the abnormal proliferation of extracellular matrix components. Is this what you said? Correct. Okay. So, you know, if, if we want to, you know, take a look at, you know, maybe this is the best way to do it is if, if I kind of go over again what happens during fibrosis. So it all begins, you know, with fibrinogen, which is a protein, and then uh, fibrinogen, uh, which is found in plasma, gets converted into fibrin. And then that's when the uh, a blood clot gets um, uh, gets placed oh. in that area. So we have a, a formation of a, of a blood clot in that area. So, so this happens in the early stages uh, of uh, of inflammation. So what, what you're going to do is, what you're going to see is that you're gonna see that in the inflammatory phase, um, you're gonna get matrix being formed in that area. Okay, so when we talk about um, a matrix being formed in that area, um, there's an invasion of various cells 
And one of those being, of course, fibroblasts. And fibroblasts are going to enter that area. They're going to um, dissolve the clot and they're going to start replacing it with collagen. Mm -hmm. So collagen is being laid down at that point in the early stages in a what we call a reticular formation. So it, it gets formed down as a reticular collagen pattern. And the reason why it's called reticular okay. is because there's specific collagen fibers that are being laid down. Mm -hmm. And those are namely type three collagen fibers. Mm -hmm. Normally in, in connective tissue, we see a lot of type one collagen fibers mm -hmm. and, and type three as well, but mainly type one. And you know, the ratio of type one to type three favors type one. Mm -hmm. Following an injury, in the initial stages, you're going to get deposition of type three collagen fibers, mm -hmm. and they're going to form almost like a like a mesh. Okay. Mm -hmm. The problem with collagen fibers and type three collagen fibers is that they're very thin, and they're very weak, mm -hmm. and so they're not as dense as regular collagen or type one collagen. So what does that mean? That means that you're going to get between those fibers, between those collagen three fibers you're going to get a lot of cellular content. So you're going to get a lot of fibroblasts in that area. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that that tissue um, is going to be uh, a weak tissue because the protein content of that ECM is not going to be uh, very dense. Mm -hmm. So when there's a bigger distance between these collagen three fibers, you're also not going to get as good of a covalent bonding between those fibers. Mm -hmm. So that immediately makes that tissue not very normal, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't look normal histologically, but it, it, it's also very weak. Mm -hmm. I, I, got, I got to jump in here because some whatever person on, on the internet um, was speaking, you know, I often say that, you know, fibrosis is normal tissue laid down haphazardly. And then people are like, oh, no, they're crazy people. Clearly, what I meant, what I mean by that statement is that what you get is a collagen, a collagenous based um, mixture, which is going to bridge the gap. So what I mean by when I say that it's just haphazardly laid down tissue, what I mean is it's still collagen. So the extracellular matrix, it's it's producing collagen. I think there's 52 different types of collagen um, right now that the literature is. Am, am I correct with that? There's there's close to 30, and then they're still working on other types. I mean, there's constantly new types of collagen being uh, discovered, right? So there's tons of and you know, kind of jumping on what you're saying is the fact that that's what exactly the the tissue. It doesn't look like the native ECM normal tissue. Mm -hmm. What is it? Okay, go ahead with that. So what does it look okay. like? So again, the collagen three fibers are, are going to be thinner. And so there's going to be a lot more space between those fibers. So it's going to be less dense, mm -hmm. making it weak. And it's not going to have the same pattern as a normal ECM would with mm -hmm. more of a collagen one fiber in there, right? Which is why I say the word, it's laid down haphazardly and then people, once again, they jump on and they go, oh, he doesn't know about, he, he doesn't know about collagen type three. He's never read about that, which is a, which is a crazy statement. Clearly, clear. And now, so, you know, this goes back to Jar, uh, Jarvanin's, uh, Jarvanin in, in muscle healing. We've heard about this before. So you have this injury and then you have this piecemeal patchwork where fibroblasts are in the area. They're going to deposit this 
they're going to start to produce collagen. The, the extracellular matrix is going to uh, is going to be altered. Now, therein lies the problem: is that if we go back to the evolutionary understanding, you would think that you know these cells are going to invade and then they're going to put things back to normal. Uh, you know, they're going to start to you know deposit type one collagen, but normal doesn't happen for a long time past that point. Correct. I mean, this happens about two to three weeks after collagen three gets laid down. So, you know, what I just mentioned now happens initially. Mm -hmm. Two, three weeks later is when you start seeing more of a collagen one again being deposited into that ECM. Mm -hmm. So now there's like a race uh, to healing. Correct. Okay. Correct. So collagen one gets laid down mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. And as collagen one gets laid down, uh, and this ratio, you know, this conversion of three, collagen three to collagen one happens, this kind of depends on a few things. It depends on enzymes and how quickly all this gets converted. And it also depends on mechanical stress and strain onto the tissue. So mm -hmm. stress and strain then are, what are these synonymous with? They're synonymous with lengthening. And obviously when talking about lengthening, we're talking about directionality, right? Mm -hmm. So that tissue needs directionality it needs stress and strain, strain in order to, to get laid down in a specific way. It's going to help that tissue heal better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like we say, for the, the, the only language that is being spoken here is the language of force. That's why we say force is the language of cells. Movement is what you say. So there's no positive of, of, of evidence demonstrating that in absence of force inputs into a damaged tissue, what is the result uh, long-term of the healing process? So let's say you have this injury and the person is uh, immobilized for a period of time. What does that look like um, histologically in, in you know, a few months down the line? So again, if, when we talk about immobility and immobilization, um, you're going to see a lot of you know, uh, muscle tissue being um, replaced by either fatty tissue Mm -hmm. And you're going to get a lot more connective tissue being laid down. So you can get a lot more fibrotic tissue kind of filling up the space, filling up the gaps. So you're going to get a lot of more thicker connective tissue. You're going to get less muscular tissue in that area. So okay. the, the way that tissue is going to be laid down, it's going to be not you know, very directional. So, so haphazardly. So take a look. I'll give you an example. Take a look at you know, uh, a tear in a tendon. Okay. And, you know, if you take a look at tendons, tendons have a very dense, tightly packed um, collagen uh, arrangement. Mm -hmm. And so when there's a tear, you're going to see very disorganized tissue in that area. Mm -hmm. So that tissue, if you take a look at it under um, specific electron microscopes, mm -hmm. uh, microscopes, sorry, um, you're going to see that that tissue is going to be very disorganized. Mm -hmm. while in the immobile stage. So if that tendon isn't moving, you're going to see a lot of tissue being laid down in a disorganized manner. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be laid down densely packed along the lines of that tendon. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up tendon because let's take tendon and ligament specifically because when I say the analogy, let's call it, that you know an injury leads to a haphazard, it's, it, it leads to healing and the healing 
it leads to scarring and the scarring is normal tissue laid down haphazardly. So what I mean, of course, is that it's still collagenous, it's still collagen-based tissue is being, but it's laid down haphazardly and no tissue is this more apparent than in ligaments and tendon where the directionality of the tissue is visibly easy to see. I mean, a ligament literally has lines. It's not crazy to draw lines like this, which right. is another thing that I do during seminars just to help people understand, to draw lines like this and say, well, in an a injured tissue left to its own accord, which is immobile, to have, you know, a, a, a haphazard pattern. And that is legitimately, with tendons and ligaments, that is legitimately the answer. That's what we see. It, it's exactly what's seen. And it's, right. and it's, and it's been seen over and over, not to mention the fact that you take ligaments and you let them heal by themselves and the ligaments always uh, end up being thinner. Um, so they're not going to be as robust. They're, they're, they're... So in ligaments and tendons, it's actually very obvious. And the analogy that I often use is very specific. And usually when I use the analogies, I'm, I'm dealing, I'm discussing, you know, ligament ruptures or, or, or tendon tears. Right. Yeah. And since you mentioned this, I mean, you, you mentioned directionality we have to realize that there is directionality in all subdivisions of connective tissue. I mean, it, yeah. it might be a little bit more evident in ligaments and in tendons because mm -hmm. that's where, you know, collagen fibers are more densely packed. Mm -hmm. But if we take a look at, you know, the intramuscular connective tissue, there's a specific pattern in the way the ECM and the collagen fibers are, are distributed within the intramuscular connective tissue, right? Um, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, uh, so, uh, I mean, in the epimecium, which is the tissue or the connective tissue that covers um, the, the muscle as a whole, um, it's a little bit more random. But it, it, if you take a look at the perimecium and the endomecium, you're going to see a little bit more regularity, regularity there. Sorry. Especially okay. the perimecium, because the perimecium is actually the intramuscular connective tissue that pretty much is continuous with them, the, the tendon. Mm -hmm. The tendon tissue is pretty much paramecium. Correct. Yeah, continued down. Which, which is why we often say that a muscle doesn't have two tendons. It has thousands and thousands of tendons because technically each, each fibril or each fascicle uh, ends at a tendon. And the fact of the matter is that not all muscle cells reach from actual tendon to actual tendon. That is the, correct. The fascicles are of a, a variety of different lengths. Correct. Uh, of course, if the longer you get these fascicles, the, the better you are, because that means you can produce more force, you can defend yourself against more injury. And that's also apparent that fascicle length that's is right. a contributing factor to chance of injury. Right. So that would mean that at every point where a fascicle ends, that terminal point technically is a tendon. So there's a variety of different tendons. Right. Because it's still connective tissue, right? And, and, and that also speaks to the idea that paramecium is... I would say, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the most directionality organized of the intramuscular connective tissues. It is. And if okay. you take a look at the paramecium, you're going to see that collagen fibers are, are laid down um, in that bundle or around that bundle, I should say, in 55 degree angles to the axis. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is at resting length, right? So we see this at, at resting length. And the reason why it, it's, you know, obviously is in that position is because it allows it to lengthen. Mm -hmm. 
So as it lengthens, we're going to see that angle decrease. So those 55, if this is my axis, and so collagen bundles uh, are being, uh, they're laid down in paramecium at 55 degrees, as that tissue now is lengthened, that angle is going to decrease, mm -hmm. which allows it for more length. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring something up here because I think this is where people get the most confused. Can I zoom in here? I can. So we, we have to start making some, you know, we can't, the problem with now is that the word fascia has been so confused in, 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 in our, um, in our uh, you know, circles that it's, it's now meant to be just the filler of every space in the body without mm -hmm. understanding that there are differences in fascias depending on the location of the fascia. And the production of that fascia, I always say that, you know, in, in, when you're dealing with the human system, there's, there's very few things that are pre-proteined for. And what I mean by that is that, you know, where the, the connective tissue goes, where muscles are, where ligaments and tendons are, these are secondary effects. Where the, 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 the embryo is protein for is to determine where spaces need to be um, created in order to make articulations. And then past that point, the act of moving and the act of using the tissue teaches the tissue what it's going to become. It's not like there's a, a time where the, the body goes, oh, we need more ligament there. So start producing ligament. It doesn't do it that way. The cells don't, the, the cells don't have brains. Okay. The nucleus is not the brain of a cell. It's just the area that houses the, 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 the DNA. So what is protein for is where these spaces go. And then as the body is used, that is going to dictate what happens to the tissue. So it's not like the body goes, okay, put fascia there. And fascia is just a one word that covers everything. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes nowadays, people use, I think it's, I think they take a clipping of this picture that I'm, that I'm showing you. Can you see this image here? Mm -hmm. They'll take a, let's say a square picture of this image. And it's hard to see here because it's blurry. But in this image, it appears that the fascia has no directionality right. because the tissue is just going everywhere. So then I, I literally hit people online come at me and say, well, you know, you're talking about directionality of tissue, but look, fascia has no directionality. It, it hurts my brain, John. It, it really hurts my brain in, in that when people are reading a study, they usually have this, this thing on the bottom of each picture which tries to describe the power of the microscope looking at the image and that matters. So in other words, yeah, if I zoom right in on this at the extent of every, you know, at the exclusion of everything else, it's gonna look like there's no directionality of tissue. But what you're looking at here is endomecium. And yes, it's true. Endomecium has less directionality then the covering paramecium, then the, the, you know what I mean? And, and, and even epimecium has less directionality in the paramecium, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have directionality. And I'm going to show this because I, I try to, if I give you tissue, one more, if I give you tissue and I tell you that the tissue has no directionality, I zoom right in and I go see, that's what fascia looks like, but that's a two dimensional picture. When I take it out of the two dimension and I look at what it looks like in three dimensions, well, guess what? Now this tissue has directionality because it's forming a, a, a tube whereby muscle cells will sit in that tube 
in a very specific direction. So again, it, when you're reading an article, you can't just look at pictures and make vast conclusions about these pictures without understanding what depth you're looking and, and the, the specifics of what that tissue is creating. And that's how anatomy is really in reality is three-dimensional. If you go further down in those images, there should be an image of the paramecium and the paramecium bundles that show the... Um, you know where it is specifically? Keep going. We're going to come back and forth between this stuff. There we go. That one? Yeah, well, this shows, these images here show what, so shows what happens with immobility, right? Mm -hmm. So immobilization. So we see normal tissue. So you see there, there's some type, and again, this is at a macroscopic level. Exactly. But you still see the disorganization, right? That happens three weeks post uh, immobilization. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you do zoom in on this, you see that of course, cross-links exist, and we're going to get to cross-linking in a second. We'll talk about cross-link. So no one's saying that, you know, every, every single collagen fiber is laid out in, in a certain direction. And, and, but what we are saying is that even in, the, even in the randomness of appearance, right, if you could zoom even more in on this tissue, wherever the lines of force are predominating over time, those fibers are going to have more robustness than the fibers that are not going in the direction of the, the load that occurs over time. So number one, this idea that fascia is just this thing that goes everywhere and there's no directionality and there's no need to worry about directionality. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a basic misunderstanding of microscopes uh, more than anything else. Right. Right. If, if you go up a little bit, some of the images, if you go further up, Keep going up here. So if you take a look here, that image on the right is mm -hmm. perimecium, right? So you can see there's longitudinal cables as they're called mm -hmm. that go along the axis of the um, of the bundle. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's some smaller smaller connective tissue that that run horizontally between bundles to kind of connect those bundles and distribute forces in that direction as well. Exactly. But I mean, this, as you can see, is not the same as this. And, and that's yes. because that's why there's different words. <laughs> that's why there's different words to describe these things. That's why there's something called endomecium and something called paramecium and something called epimecium. And I realize that the you know, what it is is blurred because all tissue blends together, but it's not just all called fascia. And that, that, is, that, is, that is not the case. So speaking of which, the, the endomecium is more haphazard, of course, than paramecium. And then epimecium is also more haphazard than, than, than paramecium. Now, that makes sense, of course, because when you're talking about epimecium, the, the covering of a muscle, this has to distribute loads not only along the lines of force, but it also has to distribute loads between uh, other bundles of, of muscle. So therefore that interface is gonna have less directionality because it's dealing with more directionality of force. Is this correct? Oh, 
This is absolutely correct. I mean, we see this in a couple of other places. We see this in um, superficial tissue, so mm -hmm. subdermal tissue, mm -hmm. right? So fascia superficialis. Uh, Again, we, we should stop here. There is something called fascia superficialis, and then there's something called fascia profunda, and they're not the same thing. So what's, what's fascia? Go ahead and what, what are the differences between these two? What's fascia superficialis? Take a look at this histologically. So if we kind of want to relate this back to the ECM, the way the ECM and the collagen proteins, the way they're distributed in the fascia superficialis or the subdermal tissue is in various directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in that situation is where we want a, and where we see like a meshwork of collagen mm -hmm. because there's directions there's forces going in various directions. So that tissue has to be able to, to account for that. Mm -hmm. Same way we see um, various fiber directions in uh, capsules. Mm -hmm. So in capsules, because there's more degrees of freedom, there's more movement happening there in various directions, we're going to see various directionalities happening within the capsule of, uh, of a joint. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, going back to the evolutionary process of how this tissue is developed, if you create a space by way of cavitation in the glob of cells that used to be us, um, that space has to be understood. And the way it's understood is by the first level of tissue, which later becomes the capsule. And that capsule needs to understand space in three dimensions. Uh, and that's why it has less directionality, because what you're doing is you're trying to take a space that gives you degrees of freedom, and then you're trying to confine that space. So it's going to be privy to a variety of different uh, loading directions over time, ergo, it's going to develop with a variety of different loading directions in time, right? Whereas, what, happens, what happens if you don't load it in all directions? Exactly. And then you get this limitation in that workspace, right? So that joint right. have a limited workspace because that tissue is not going to be able to lengthen or account for, you know, a change in that direction. Which is why at a microscopic level, even when you're looking at a, an electron micrograph of tissue that looks haphazard to your eye, it doesn't mean it's haphazard to the system. The system, how else, listen, how else would it have been laid down? If it wasn't being laid down along the lines of some loading inputs, then there's literally no other way for tissue to know how to exist. Because- this is something that we know from histological studies. If you take a look at fibroblasts, and mm. they've done this in the lab, obviously. I mean, it, it's definitely hard to do it, you know, in, in, right in, in vivo and in tissue, but because I mean, there's imaging involved, and you know, it's very expensive, and you know, there's lots of variables, etc. But if you take a fibroblast and you activate it, which means that you're going to, what it does, it kind of shrinks and it kind of flattens out, and when a fibroblast gets activated, it's going to lay down collagen fibers along those stress lines. Yeah. So it's going to get, so, so that's what happened. That, that's those stress lines are direction. It's directional. Non-debatable, non-debatable that that happens. I mean, this is, it's not one study, two studies. This is, this is a, a whole genre of evidence that, that demonstrates that fact. And then it's having tools, whether, you know, it's, you know, soft tissue and you know, we can get into this or exercise, which is more global loading, uh, being able to to lay down tissue to 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 help mm -hmm. uh, that tissue kind of get back to a, a almost like a, a normal type of um, um, tissue structure, which is why the understanding of the anatomy past this 
you know, this, you, you know, you just got to make it strong and strength is all you need. And as long as it's strong, well, no, if, if you know this fact, then the, the specificity of the inputs that you are able to impart on your clients will lead to the development of better quality tissue that has more directionality. So understanding that, you know, things do have direction and of course they have direction. It, you, you never see a bicep grow in this direction. I don't know if anybody's noticed that, but biceps always grow in this direction. And that's because it, it helps bring things to the face, not because there's a genetic code in the DNA that says biceps must look this way, but it's because the information flow goes along a direction and that information flow will, will lead to the development of tissue to allow for that information to flow properly. Now, where is there confusion? Yes, there is confusion in that when a force is being generated, and now we know better, we, you know, before when we talked about um, uh, the sliding filament theory, for example, and this idea, you know, there's just actin and myosin and a contraction and it crosses over and the cross, like it's stuff that we learned, you know, back first day, first grade, you know what I mean? Like, we now know that that model is, is largely incorrect as well because that model really describes what's happening at one sarcomere you know, by itself. But if you take the, the larger uh, understanding of muscle, we now know that as actin and myosin crosses, it also separates because when a muscle contracts, it, it's gonna radially expand, which means a lot of the directional forces will permeate laterally. And there's a large amount of lateral permeation of forces during contraction, but that's, also still to help the the information in the direction of the flow it, it doesn't mean that you know doing bicep curls will lead to you know collagen being laid down it's not like i'm going to look at a bicep and all of a sudden see fibers being laid down sideways i mean that doesn't happen either am i correct in saying that oops yeah yeah totally. okay so we have different layers of connective tissue we have um you know, the fascia superficialis, which is really the, the connecting tissue between the skin and the underlying tissue, right? Of course, the skin can move in a variety of different directions. So there's going to be less directionality. Then you have your epimecium and mm -hmm. then you have your paramecium. Did you want to say more about the paramecium itself or? Um, um, I think, the, you know, I think we, we touched on the fact that, it, you know, it, there is direction to it. You know, the ECM, the connective tissue, the collagen fibers, do have a direction. There's a directionality within that tissue. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not just, you know, uh, just a mesh work of, of collagen. Uh, you, you know, you, you kind of said it correctly by, by taking a look at things in a two-dimensional or on paper or, um, you know, under the microscope. If you take a look at things at a deeper level, you'll see that there is directionality there. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, and that matters. The, the idea of understanding what level your microscope is at, it matters when you make conclusions as crazy as, you know, fascia goes in every direction. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think that as a soft tissue therapist, this is a very potent understanding. Um, a lot of people will put their hands on a body and they'll just start, you know, moving everywhere and they go, well, fascia goes everywhere, uh, you know, but, but no, fascia doesn't go everywhere. It, it, it is everywhere, um, but fascia has a function and the function is determined by force. Right. And there's, there's no way around that. So yes, there's more directionality in some connective tissues than others, 
but the the argument that there's no directionality is 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 a is a is a failed argument. It's a it's it's it it doesn't really make a hell of a lot of sense. Now, another thing that has been brought up uh, in a lot of years is this idea. Uh, I can't remember the article. Maybe you have it off the top of your head, but there is an article looking at the amount of force that a soft tissue practitioner can uh, ostensibly put into tissue, and then that amount of force was contrasted against the amount of force it would take to rupture the tissue. Right. Uh, and I can't remember the exact article. Get the author. Yeah, they did this on the AT band. And then all of a sudden, again, wild conclusions, all of a sudden the conclusion was that because you are unable to put the forces necessary to rip tissue, then the conclusion was that there's no point in doing soft tissue work. Right. Now, uh, do you try to rip tissue when you're doing soft tissue work? Is that the goal? That's not, that's not the point. And, okay. um, you know, nobody talks about, you know, at least we haven't ever mentioned the fact that we're, we said this before, that we're breaking up scar tissue or we're ripping um, connective tissue apart. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what you're trying to do is get that tissue to start adapting and providing various loads and forces onto that tissue to initiate a change. I mean, okay. that's pretty much what's happening, right? With, mm -hmm. with what we're doing. And then that change, of course, uh, has to, you know, the signal has to be given in time, but over time. So in time, what we're saying is if we can give some directional signal into that tissue um, that is later followed up with exercise, which reinforces that directionality that we can improve on the end result of of um, the connective tissue that is laid down. Correct. Okay. The whole idea is to create directional load onto, onto that tissue mm -hmm. and to initiate a process to activate, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the fibroblasts mm -hmm. in that tissue to start creating that process. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we take a look at, you know, work, for example, by Langevin, and, you know, she worked more with acupuncture and needles and twisting needles. And you saw that when she provided direction uh, with that needle, um, she was able to um, activate fibroblasts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't take much force. I was just going to ask that. So what is the, yeah, I mean, you don't have to quantify that, but I guess you just answered my question. It, it, the amounts of forces that need be imparted in order to create cellular signaling is not a high amount of force. No. Okay. From from what we know, and from you know the concepts like mechanical transduction, we know that you know forces are what create uh, activity in cells. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what the research shows us, or at least some of the research that shows us, is that we don't need high amounts of force to activate that tissue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or to initiate that process. Okay. Now let's talk a bit about the directionality that can be imparted by soft tissue work. I would argue that the idea that you can move over the skin and that that's somehow going to give a directional uh, information to the underlying tissue, I, I would not I would not agree that that would be possible. 
So mm -hmm. the idea, if I'm a fibroblast, right? And I have, you know, there's skin over me here and there's tissue, right? Filling this gap. If you just kind of roll something along the surface of the tissue to the fibroblast, the resultant force that it feels is this. So it, it just it's just a compressive force that really doesn't have um, much in terms of directionality. But this, of course, is why um, effective soft tissue therapy will in, include movements. Um, uh, you know, sometimes they do it actively. I would disagree that that's a good way to do it. But at least passive movement with directionality of the thumb, uh, imparting a force in a particular direction. Now there there's some. Um, you know, people often point to this, this one study by Ross and Bereznik about there being a frictionless interface mm -hmm. uh, between the, the skin and the underlying tissue. And somehow that study, which by the way, was done uh, on two people, as far as I remember, and it was the authors themselves, whereby they took a mold of uh, hands in a particular position and put it on the skin and then had the this machine kind of roll over the skin and they realized that there was no increase in forces. And therefore the conclusion was that there's a frictional interface, which I often found weird because if you grab the skin of your elbow and you tug on it, it's not like I can pull the skin of my, the elbow onto my head. Like I can't grab my outer connective tissue body and just turn it around, which would be a frictionless interface. Clearly there, there's, there's friction at the, at the end of, of, of any type of force you put in. Um, right. So I, I suppose what we're saying is that under low loading environments, which is what's necessary to create fibroblastic change, the application of a, of a compressive and then a directional force reinforced by the moving of the tissue underneath that, that, that uh, stimulus. Creating length is what you're saying. Right? Creating length would be the stimulus that would lead to um, you know, at least an understanding as to where the directionality of information, where the directionality of flow, where the directionality of tissue would have to be laid down. Am I incorrect in saying that? Correct. I mean, if you, and, and this again is where I want, you know, talking about lengthening and, and stretching, and you mentioned this initially during this conversation, but, you know, I, I said there was a study yeah, and there are a couple of studies that are, um, that were done that show that stretching uh, decreased soluble uh, TGF beta, which is an inflammatory agent, which is uh, found during fibrotic uh, tissue being laid down. So um, by lengthening that tissue, creating a brief stretch with what we're doing, in addition to loading that tissue, you're trying to activate the um, cellular components of that tissue in order to, to create some of those changes that we that we were talking about before. Now, I don't want to I don't want to overplay the literature hand in that I don't want to say that there's research that's demonstrated, you know, thumb goes in, this goes this way, and then you have the resultant tissue. Uh, what we're trying to do here is we're taking first principle research and then we're combining it with clinical um, with with clinical research. And then we're coming to that conclusion based on that. As I said earlier, in absence of direct RCTs, the, the, the clinician is left with the understanding of first principles and the logical application of first principles in order to try to create the changes uh, that we want to make. So 
just because that research doesn't exist today, it doesn't mean it's not going to exist tomorrow. And we have to make predictive guesses based on the knowledge we have now. So what do we have now just based on this conversation? Number one, tissue, in fact, has directionality, which is, it's not one of those things that can be argued um, because even at a, at a global level, you can see the directionality of tissue. When you right. go into a microscope, you see that there's less directionality in some areas. There's cross-linking, of course, <clears throat> but that doesn't negate the idea that there is directionality in tissue. Um, we also know that in development, that directionality of tissue would have been initiated by force inputs because that is what leads to, you know, if you take an embryo right when, let's say, the 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 um, joint space cavitates and, and, and is created, if we somehow clamp down on that joint space and then let the embryo continue to develop, what we're not going to get is a normal joint. We're going to get haphazard, uh, you know, tissue layers, because when a fibroblast doesn't know what to do, it's like when you injure yourself, fibroblasts invade in the area. If you're immobile, the fibroblast has, it's listening for signal to know what to do. If it doesn't get that signal of force, that's what I mean. It starts to lay down tissue in a haphazard manner, which means the wrong type of collagen over time in the wrong direction. So tissue has directionality. Uh, force is what births that directionality, the right. amount of force necessary to signal, at least to initiate the signaling of that directionality is not very high, as would be demonstrated by these people saying that you can't rip fascia as if that's the, mm -hmm. the conclusion. And then the idea that if you put force in and then move tissue along its directionality, these are the kinds of, of conclusions we're making. Now, if you add those conclusions to the idea that it's not really debatable whether or not therapeutic touch is effective. Right? right. We're not going to get into that. I mean, we could do this some other time, but we can get into some of the other stuff when it comes to. So then the question becomes, well, for the people who have doubts about this, if, if, if most people doubting this still say, well, yeah, I do soft tissue on my clients. Well, you can either make the, the decision, the conscious decision to haphazardly apply soft tissue, right? Just because you want to conclude that the evidence is out, that there's no such thing as directionality and it doesn't matter what you do, which by the way, there's no evidence for that. I, that, that, that we're talking about, we're on this level playing field. So it's either you take the evidence about what I, we just went over and you say, well, we should probably be directionally loading this tissue, right? I mean, don't forget that this, go ahead. Yeah, and don't forget that this, we had global loading, right? So on top of the soft tissue, we're adding pails and rails. So we're moving that patient towards more active strategies. That's, that's the whole point. That's part of the whole process. Yes. If people, are, if people are, are making the argument that people rely on soft tissue too much, I, I think that we will both agree that that's 100% true. Uh, you know, you don't want patients to be dependent no. on your soft tissue inputs, um, especially for things like pain management. And, and th this is also not, that is also not good science. The idea that you tell your clients that we're, you know, I'm rubbing the pain away, or I somehow am breaking adhesions or scar tissue. I mean, that's, that's intellectually dishonest, right. just as intellectually dishonest as saying, for example, that connective tissue has no directionality. This is, these are 
These are, mm -hmm. these are dishonest claims or claiming that there's evidence against the utilization of soft tissue. Because I mean, what, how do you define it? You take a lot of this, re, this evidence and a lot of people will agree that, you know, exercise loads tissue directionally and that, you know, if you're rehabbing an injury, you should take into account what is the anatomy that's injured and then base the exercises off that anatomy in so much as saying it's not just randomly get strong. So they can understand it at that level. But as soon as you bring it back down a level and you start saying, okay, well, if we're going to put forces in with our hands, maybe we should put forces in the exact way that the research does tell us the cells understand the forces. Right. Then why wouldn't you? Right. And I guess this is a good point to kind of transition in, into outcome measures. Mm. Because people, you know, uh, outcome measures are, you know, are things that we kind of need to define because it's these things that we, you know, ultimately have to have to change. And so the presence of outcome measures in manual therapy is important because it's going to guide both our intent and what our plan is going to be with uh, our soft tissue management, right? Or management of our patient. Hmm. The problem with um, with all these outcome measures is that many colleagues um, use pain as an outcome measure when it comes to manual therapy. Mm, this is a big point. Yep. Right. But we know that pain does not equal or it's not a sign of structural damage necessarily. So just because, you know, you're poking on somebody and, you know, specific points uh, on the body um, create tenderness or pain, that doesn't mean that those are necessarily a problem there. Um, so, you know, many people are, right? And so people are still kind of basing their argument on the fact that manual therapy uh, on its own will not have a huge effect on pain levels uh, or the, the general health of an individual. But then, you know, if you take a look at things and you take a look at research, neither will exercise prescription, neither will surgery. Mm. So all these methods show a similar effectiveness when it comes to, to kind of pain and um, in a general well-being. But we have to kind of go back and if we're dealing and we're talking about manual therapy, then the uh, and we're talking about affecting tissue, as we've been saying throughout this podcast, then you want to use outcome measures that are tissue-based outcome measures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's where you want to see where you're going to have an effect. And using tissue-based outcome measures is what you need to use uh, instead of you know having more mechanical outcomes instead of pain uh, outcomes when you're dealing with uh, with some of these things. Yeah, it, it's it's almost as if the people would think that we somehow disagree with the pain science research, as if as if we're allowed to disagree with research. Like we're not disagreeing. Um, the pain science research is what the pain science research is, and and like you said, the correlation is not is not is not high. Um, however, I mean, I, I can jump on the, on that side of the argument too, and and argue back the other way and say that, like you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of soft tissue work that is done for no apparent reason, just because people are searching for the the boo boos that hurt. Like right. I often say, if you're a fly on the wall, in in most you know, let's just say massage therapy rooms, and you can watch treatments. <laughs> and you watch 10 treatments in succession, what you'll likely see is 10 treatments where the exact same areas were focused on. 
because there are predetermined areas in the body whereby palpation leads to pain in, in, in normal uh, tissue. Like right. for example, like, I mean, if you, if you push in here in, in a person, you know, in these regions here, it's going to hurt. Right. And then of course, people who don't understand anatomy go, well, that's the QL. And then we say, well, no, it, you know, open up a dissection manual and you realize that's not the QL and the QL is actually, I would say 95% covered by the erector spinae itself. So the amount of QL that you really have access to is a very small amount. It's more central, blah, blah, blah. But what you realize is that people are pushing into the kidneys and you know what? It, it, it fucking hurts to push into kidneys. Just like if you push into the buttock right in the middle, you know, well, that's irritation of the sciatic nerve and blah, blah. Well, no, it's just the fact that that area is more sensitive to palpation as is the lateral portion of your elbow, as is the, the best one is the levator scapula trigger point. Right. I love when people point to the levator scapula trigger point down here. And then, and then you go, what are you pointing at? And you go, well, this is the spine of the scapula. And then you go, where does the levator originate from? And they go, oh, it's from the superior angle of the scapula. And then I show them that the superior angle of the scapula is over here. So why are you pushing back here and telling me that's a levator? It's not a levator. It's just a point in the body, which is more sensitive to palpation. Like I can punch you in the arm. It's going to hurt. Or I can punch you in the jaw. It's going to hurt more. It doesn't mean your jaw was messed up. It just means that that's how the body is. Right. right. So right. I, I don't want to, I don't want to get people confused into thinking that. And that's another thing is that a lot of the times, you know, someone comes in, Oh, it, it, it hurts here. And then the person does the soft tissue therapy and then they go, how does it feel? Person goes, Oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. And then the soft tissue therapist pats themselves on the back as if they did something, not understanding the concept of touch induced analgesia, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you hurt yourself here, you can rub it. You can, you can pat it. You can, you can do whatever you want. And guess what? The pain level will go down. That's not an outcome measure. Correct. Right. So tissue based outcome measure. So what are you really doing that you're not doing anything? Right. Same thing. And by with the way, now that we're on this topic of, and, uh, and you, I won't interrupt you next, but range of motion is the same. Like, don't show me someone's range of motion and then do soft tissue therapy and then show me an improved range of motion that day and tell me that you accomplished anything because you haven't. Right. Because when you rub something, pain goes down. Pain goes down, range of motion tends to go up. But two days later, when pain goes up, range of motion goes back down. So, right. Go ahead. If you had something. No, I mean, uh... I mean, that, 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 that goes to show that the, like you would say, the outcome measure that people are using uh, is incorrect. And, and I mean, nothing messes up someone's understanding of, of anything th than using wrong outcome measures. I mean, if you're using the wrong, I mean, there's literature dedicated to this concept of trying to reduce pain using, you know, management. With, with, with I think, well. I think we know this. We've all come to the conclusion that when, it, you know, soft tissue and, and, and pain, pain is multifaceted, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. there's lots of reason why somebody is going to be in pain. So um, I think we got to move past that. I think research is still trying to prove something that I think we all understand that pain is multifaceted and, Mm -hmm. soft tissue we're going to try to affect things in a different way so more on on the tissue-based outcome um, side than on the pain uh on the pain side 
And then on the tissue-based outcome side, it's just a matter of coming to the conclusion that there is such thing as optimal and there's such thing as suboptimal. And we've talked about this now for a few hours now is that the research is not, um, it's not, it's not confused on this point. Like if you look at a tissue, <clears throat> if a surgeon looks at a tissue, if a therapist looks at a tissue, if you, if you put an electron microscope on a tissue, you can point to that image and say, there's something wrong with that. Whereas this one is normal. Now, if right. you can say that, just saying that means that we know that there's something over here that's not right. And what we mean by not right is it's not going to produce or accept forces in a normal way versus normal tissue, right? Mm -hmm. So if, mm -hmm. if, if, if we agree that fibrosis exists, I mean, you've done this as well too. I've been in, uh, in surgical scenarios where I'm, I'm, I'm observing surgeries and you, know, you, you go into a, a, a severely arthritic joint just with your eyeballs, you can see that there's tissue that's abnormal, right? It's not like it's it's a it's a it's not like you need some special magic uh, powers or glasses. You can right. see physically that that person's tissue is normal and this person's tissue is not. So if there's an abnormality of tissue and we agree that tissue is in time based on force profiles, then we have to agree that if the force profiles and we know that force is what directs how tissues lays down, then by normalizing force profiles, we would make that tissue closer to what optimal is. Right. Right. Or right. else we have, we would, on the flip side of that, we would have to, we would have to say that there is no optimal and it doesn't matter how much cross-linking there is. And it doesn't matter about the directionality of the paramecium. And it doesn't matter because, you know, when I touch it, it still hurts. I mean, but that's, it's, it's a poor, piss poor use of outcome measures. It, it is. Exactly. Um, I mean, we can keep going on this for days. Is there anything else that we had to cover in this particular topic that you want to, and you can go, we can go backwards. We can go forwards. If there's anything else you want to talk about, do you want to talk more about this cross-linking? Is that something that, that you think confuses people? Cross-linking happens at two levels. I mean, it happens as collagen gets formed. Um, from tropocollagen um, into that triple helix, you're going to get covalent bonding and, uh, and crosslinks. And then you're going to get crosslinks at a uh, more macroscopic level, I guess, between uh, collagen fibers within the ECM. Remember I said before that um, covalent linkages uh, or covalent bonding is uh, a little bit you know, weaker uh, in the initial stages of uh, repair when you have collagen three, because there's more space there. Um, as that tissue is going to mature, you're gonna get more covalent linkages uh, between the collagen one fibers, which are denser, are gonna come a little bit closer to each other, making that tissue a little bit more dense mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit more stable. The problem with covalent bonding is that you don't want too much of that because when you get too much covalent bonding, which happens when you have too much tissue there with no direction mm -hmm. is what you're going to get is you're going to get a pathological process of fibrosis happening. So now research is being done to show that if you have increased covalent bonding, you're going to get um, more um, thicker tissue that's even less functional. So we see this in, uh, in age 
uh, in people that are uh, older, mm -hmm. uh, we see in their tissue that we have a lot more uh, covalent bonds, covalent links that make that tissue um, less pliable, less elastic. Mm. When you're, I know the answer to this, but when you're assessing for fibrosis, uh, we'll both agree that you it's not something that you can feel in terms of a textural change. It's not like we're feeling for something that feels like fibrosis, right? Right. I think people, I'm going to give this to you, but I, I, I do want to point this out. I think people don't really understand what our receptors are there for. And, and the vast majority of receptors are there to, uh, they, they, they feel force, right? It's like uh, wetness. When, when somebody says something feels wet, nothing feels wet. Your body cannot feel wetness. It, it just feels temperature change. And then it feels temperature change uh, over a gradient over your skin, which then allows you to determine that you're feeling something wet. Does that make sense? Obviously, you know this, and, but people don't know that. People are like, what the fuck are you talking about? But the truth is, is that we have no receptors for wet, right? Um, just like, you know, you're feeling through skin. So we don't have receptors that are going to feel alterations in directionality of collagen. I mean, our, our, our receptors are not that strong. So mm -hmm. what, are, what, 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 is the, what does first principles then tell us that we might be able to feel for? Well, um, this was showed actually in a study by, um, by Jarvin, I think it was, where they looked at the, uh, the immobilization of, of, uh, of an injured tissue. Um, and they showed that, you know, you have an increase in collagen content within that tissue that we mentioned earlier. And in the study, they showed that when you look at the perinecium, the angle of um, the collagen fibers, the way they were laid down, was a lot um, less, it was shorter. So it was closer to the access, mm -hmm. which meant that as you lengthen that tissue, uh, you're gonna get less elasticity. So mm -hmm. those fibers are going to increase in tension as it lengthens more. So uh, looking at the stress strain curve, what you're going to see is you're gonna see as that tissue gets lengthened and you're getting a ramping up of that tension, a normal increase in that tension, you're going to get a quick ramping up of that tension in, in, in tissue that's injured uh, and immobilized. Mm. So it's really what you're feeling for is a, is, is a change in that tension. So change in tension means that there's a, a problem in the elasticity of the connective tissue. Mm. So force. You're, you, I, I, a better way to, I, I like to, to, when I'm teaching to say, feel for resistance to movement. And, and changes in resistance um, for tissue to achieve length. So the, the change in resistance is really what you're go what's going to be translated in your finger as an increased amount of force at length. Is this what you're saying? Correct. Exactly. Okay. So maybe now speak to the utilization of a set. My dog's staring at me like he wants to leave the room. And he's starting to cry. So I'm going to... There you go, buddy. So maybe let's speak to that idea that um, do you want to actively assess this? Do you want to passively assess this? And why? Well, when you're looking at 
connective tissue, um, and you're looking at the stress strain curve, uh, the, the white stuff or the connective tissue, the way we want to assess that is uh, passively. You want to lengthen that tissue passively to feel for that tension, okay? That's uh, neurologically innervated. Um, mm -hmm. But the white stuff, the connective tissue, you're going to assess passively. Mm. Because you're, you really are trying to, you're trying to feel for resistance, but the assessment at length is a prerequisite. Uh, to this understanding is what you're saying. Right. So in order to achieve length, you want to decrease neurological tone, make the the muscle relax to a certain extent, so that you can access the the length, which is where you'll feel this this alteration in resistance. Exactly. That's okay. Crazy. And now, <laughs> length is also the stimulus that leads to the development of further tissue. Correct. Correct. Okay. So, so that's where you're going to get force production. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to be at, at length is where you're going to feel for that change in tension in where, uh, remember we said before, uh, even with stretching, when you're lengthening that tissue, uh, you're creating load onto that tissue. Mm -hmm. There's also some research that describes stretching with contraction uh, being of more benefit, of course, then because you're getting to this elongated state and then putting further amounts of force at length right? right now we can couple that literature with the plethora of literature that talks about you know training to length training at length uh being the stimulus that leads to for example sarcomerogenesis and i think it was o'sullivan back in 2012 2012 was it i can't remember that did the uh, randomized control trial, um, or not the randomized, it was a meta-analysis, I believe, looking at eccentric training as being a stimulator of, uh, of sarcomerogenesis. Mm -hmm. Right, so, right? And, and so, yeah, so the idea that you can, that the, the best stimulus to create new connective tissue would be force application at length. Right, and what's eccentric is you really, Forcing using force at length, force at length, and then to a lesser extent, you have you know isometrics. Isometrics also done at length um, would also stimulate that kind of uh, that kind of signal. Mostly because when you contract isometrically, the red tissue uh, is is pretty much taken up right in the beginning of the contraction, and then the force then gets funneled into the white tissue, which right. again at length. There's a difference between training to length and training at length, which I think people often confuse where they say, well, yeah, I train full range of motion. It's like, well, no. Training full range of motion with a bicep curl puts you at the length and position for a fraction of a second before you come back up. So this idea that you're training with motion, um, it really should be understand, understood where in, in uh, internal strength model, we make this division between, are you training red? Or are you training white? And if you're training red, then yes, you want continuous motion sets. But if you're training white, one of the parameters here is that you want to funnel the forces into the connective tissue, which happens at length, right? right. Which is a, a fundamental quality or necessity to send signal directionality, right? Which because in short position, connective tissue is in a crimp position, right? So at yeah. length is where you're going to get that propagation of force going through the uh, the weight stuff through the connective tissue. Hmm. So that's why you want to train at length.
you right. want to train at length at least for, at least if that's the exact um if that's exactly what you're you're trying to go for so i'm trying to go through and see if we've missed anything that you wanted to discuss about fibrosis I think we, do you think we've covered everything that we, covered we covered i think we might have so i mean let's review so i i let and we'll go point by point in this review. The first thing that, that we brought up here is that the misunderstanding of evolution um, leads to this misunderstanding of the healing process in, in, in so far as people feel that by this time, our system should have known how to heal uh, as if the system was trying to get better. Um, and that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the evolutionary process in, in, in thinking that there is an end goal in mind. Uh, and what we know from evolution, and, 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 and it's, it just matters on the selective pressures that were apparent uh, during, that, during that selective pro process. And uh, with regards to tissue healing, that's not a, a strong uh, selective pressure because a lot of injured animals never made it out of that injury. So we could say that it was a softer selective pressure than a beneficial pressure of, you know, I'm stronger than you, I'm bigger than you, I'm going to pass those genes on to my, my offspring, so that they have the advantages mechanically that they need to survive. I'm not saying there's no pressure. Um, but that 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 is a, a generic misunderstanding. Um, bipedalism is not, you know, there there's benefits to bipedalism. But there's also there's also a, a lot of downfalls to bipedalism, right? So, whereas in one scenario it allowed us to look up at the horizon, it freed up our hands for you know the, the throwing of spears or or of of um, the utilization of tools or of um, or of um, weaponry. It, it also put a significant amount of stress on the the spinal system, right? So it's not like that was you know, we got here and now we're moving towards another optimal thing. And that's why when you look at the healing patterns or the tissue healing of our species versus other species, you don't see a crazy difference, to be honest with you. Um, I just redid this literature search uh, in, in leading up to this, and, and you do not see a, a ton of interspecies differences, at least mammalian differences between right. between species. It's pretty much the same the same kind of thing where if you study a rat tendon you know it's generally going to go in the same in the same uh line or the same vein it's going to heal the same way which is suboptimally if left to its own accord now will we agree that an injured tissue if the person gets up and moves will that improve 100 it'll improve of course, of course 100%. but the idea that making those movements more specific to the force inputs that we want for that tissue you, you can't have it both ways. If you tell me that moving around will be somewhat beneficial uh, and you know that the way tissue heals is by directionality of forces, well, then you have to conclude that if, if those movements are somehow more specific to the directionality of the tissue you want to heal, then first principles tells us that that's the, the type of inputs that you should be using. I mean, healing happen, right? We, we talked about the fact how the process of healing happens and we go from collagen, mainly collagen one to collagen type three, back to collagen type one. So you get a somewhat of a healing happening. And mm -hmm. you're right, if you move around, you're going to get some forces into that tissue and you're going to get even better healing. But if you want to talk about optimal healing, mm -hmm. try to at least, you know, try to get as close as you can 
then you know just just moving around randomly is not going to cut it necessarily, mm -hmm. right? So um, look at athletes. I mean, look at you know injuries and re-injuries. Um, if, if that was the case, then we wouldn't get re-injured in, in, in the same spots, right? Mm -hmm. So those that tissue is is weak because it hasn't progressively been loaded in a specific way in specific directions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. over time. Over time. I mean, we can go. We can go to a very specific point with this, which is ACL rupture. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the ACL has directionality. There's, 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 there's no argument about this. If you look at an ACL, it has directionality. Um, and what do they show in the least literature now with regarding ACL? What, the number one injury you're going to suffer moving forward, following an ACL injury and repair, is an ACL injury leading to further repair. This is a problem that is all over. Uh, you know, uh, sports uh, in the last few years, especially in the NFL, but they also are talking about the idea that ACLs probably require longer um, uh, healing times, right? Whereby, you know, you try to get, before we were trying to get people back in six months, right back to, to play. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that got pushed to a year and that got pushed to a year and a half and that's getting pushed, pushed even further. And that's because if you take a anterior cruciate ligament, and then you take a semitendinosus tendon or a patellar tendon, and you put the lig the tendon in place of the ligament. A tendon is not a ligament, right? Mm -hmm. Number one. So it takes time for the cells that are now being used as a ligament to change beneficially so that they will act more as a ligament, number one. Number right. two what exercise cannot do is speed the process as to how that tissue will then be understood by the central nervous system. Because if you just take, you rip a tissue out, you put it here, and then you, you can somehow go into the brain and look at the brain's interpretation of that tissue. If it doesn't get afferents from that tissue, the brain doesn't even know it's there. So, right. so I mean, so of course you're going to get re-injured and they will, you know, this, this, exercise is better than this one who gives a shit about the exercise at that point until that tendon becomes a ligament and until that ligament starts producing afferents which probably takes a couple years you're not going to do much to change injury rates or re-injury rates on an acl right. right which speaks to the specificity of directional force loading and why it's so important and and why it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen in two to three visits I love hearing people tell me that they fix plantar fasciitis in, in one visit. Right. Man, that either means that you your hands do not have the same rules of the physical universe as everyone else, or you're a shitty diagnostician because that was not plantar fasciitis. Right. But they're, they're, like, I think you, I forgot the quote that you said, but with when you're tra treating someone, you're not something about dragons. What did you say? You're not kill. We're not killing dragons here. Is that what you said? With regards to the soft tissue, yeah, something like that. Like we're not we're not magical. This isn't a this isn't a magical thing where you rub the problem away. That's this right. Is a, this is a force inputted over time with directionality in mind. So that was point two or point one. This misunderstanding of healing. Point two is the is the fact that fibrosis exists. Right. Right. I mean, you know, we see it on MRI. We see it on signal from MRI. You see it in, ask any surgeon, do, do you see fibrosis? What do you mean? Of course you see fibrosis. We, we literally know how things heal from an external perspective when you cut yourself. Now, the idea that it happens internally is not a far jump 
considering it's the same system, right? So we know that. Um, now, if you add that to the third point, which we talked about directionality, right? Did you have, did you want to go into no, no, go ahead. Keep, keep okay, so the, there's a, the review, of course, but you jump in any time. There is directionality to tissue and whether or not you see it based on your understanding or lack thereof of how electron microscopes work, you can't just take a picture of random connective tissue and see that there's cross links and there's fibers going in different direction and make the conclusion that fascia just goes everywhere and it doesn't matter because as you have laid out very intelligently, what, which fascia are you talking about? Right. Right. Um, and, and there's different levels. There's superficialis versus profunda. Within the profunda, there's the superficial level. There's the you know, epimysium, paramysium, endomysium. Uh, and, and all of these things developed from an evolutionary standpoint based on, on force. And we talked about that as well. And that these things are created. And all these tissues show directionality because of force. I mean, we talked about fascist superficialis having you know more of a meshwork and that's because there's forces going in various directions we talked about joint capsules and how there's um, you know collagen fibers going in various directions and that's because it accounts for movement in various directions mm -hmm. when we talk about perimesium then we start to kind of hone in a little bit on what happens there because that perimesium kind of has blends in with the tendon which moves in specific directions so you know the directionality is accounted for or it kind of represents, I should say, the forces that are being placed on that tissue. Yes, and then we also talked about those forces having to be at length in order to, um, for the signal to be strong enough to allow the fibroblast to know where the direction of, of, of tissue should go, which is why in an area, you know, when the fibroblasts in this area, they don't live forever, when they go and they're replaced by daughter cells, these daughter cells, they don't know what to do either. So once again, that's why continued forces over time is what's necessary to not only fix abnormal connective tissue, but to maintain abnormal tissue through the aging process, which we didn't talk much about. Um, but but that that idea that these these this directionality has to be you know, give it and then reinforced and then reinforced again and reinforced again because there's tissue turnover in time and right. all of your cells go away and all of your cells are replaced and all of your tissues replaced in time. So this signal is not something that happens in the embryological stages only. This is an ongoing signal uh, until your, all of your signals are done and you're dead, right? So this requires, uh, this requires that. So um, there's that. And then we went a little bit into the idea that there's research out there on soft tissue work. And if you look at the clinical research on soft tissue work, you know, first off, it lumps soft tissue work into everything. You know, it, we did soft tissue work and this is what we found. And then we talked about the problem with outcome measures. And are you doing soft tissue work for the purpose of decreasing pain measures? Uh, because then I we believe that your soft tissue work is the outcome measure is skewed. It's not really, it, it, it's not, you can't rely on your palpation of pain to determine pain, nor can you rely on it to determine if the pain is getting better. This is not, nor can you feel pain, nor does pain exist, by the way, in the nociception where you're touching, because that's nociception. This is pain. These are not the same thing. 
So we talked about this idea of pain science research and how I think most therapists need more understanding of pain science research so you understand how little you have to say about pain in, in the long run with just soft tissue therapy. There's other ways of managing. You want to go into that a bit. There's other ways of managing pain. I mean, I mean clinic, just the way you deal with your client, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you know, patient interaction is going to be, you know, it's a big thing in patient, you know, education, you know, being able to, to sit down with the patient. And um, people kind of tend to, um, a lot of colleagues, I think, tend to neglect the history intake. Uh, mm. They shouldn't uh, as much. They tend people come in and say, what do you have? We'll lay them on the table and start doing stuff on them without even taking a history, um, you know, making sure they understand where that patient patients coming from. I mean, uh, what do they like to be done? You know, some people don't like manual therapy. I mean, some people do like manual therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to be able to, to, to judge and, you know, and see how you're going to get that patient to get better when it comes to pain, using the various tools you have, again, taking them and moving more towards active strategies uh, and away from passive. But if you have to use passive strategies, initially, um, you might be able to want to do that, but to a certain extent before you get them moving uh, and using exercise. And then the question with those passive strategies becomes, you can either throw your hands in the air and say, I'm just going to rub the person, right? Correct. Because as or, I said before, the, the most staunch critics of soft tissue therapy will say, well, yeah, I do some, some, some massage, right? They just kind of fluff it off as not being important. Or you can take first principle knowledge, which we've laid out here and, and, and reinterpreting that you're not feeling for adhesions. What are you feeling for? Is there resistance? Does the resistance have a directionality? Does the tissue have a directionality? Can I somewhat impart manual inputs that might reinforce the directionality? Uh, even in the learning process for that patient, the, the, the fact that you're providing directionality and they can feel the directionality, we, we've never looked at whether or not that enhances their ability to then apply specific lines of force in their rehabilitation. And this, you know, this concept is, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to go. So it's either, like we said, you look at the research and you go, nah, forget all soft tissue, right? Just just, just get it off the table. You know what I mean? Like at one point the earth was round and, and there would have been the same kind of argument ah, until you give me a picture of the earth, sorry, the earth was flat until you give me a picture of it. Uh, forget all of this shit. Let's just continue to, to tell me that the earth is flat. And, and that's really, I mean, it, it sounds like a crazy example, but that's really what I, I put it down to is that, are you sure? Like I would ask them, are you sure soft tissue is not doing anything because it seems to me like the evolutionary being that you're telling me is so evolutionarily advanced in terms of healing. Are you telling me that that evolutionary superior being can't feel the directionality of force when I impart it with my thumb? Like think about how crazy that is. The argument is evolution has made it so that when you injure the body can heal itself no matter what, because it's infinitely intelligent. But isn't that going backwards a little bit? Yeah, it's so Thinking infinitely of... intelligent that it can't tell what direction your thumb is pushing. Right. I mean, how can that be the case, right? Is that what you were referring to? Right, exactly. 
it's it's a contradiction of of the point. It is. Yeah. So anyway, John, anything else to add here? Mm, I think we covered everything. We summarized, you know, uh, the, the key points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we did. I think we got that. I think we we developed at least a, you know, we developed an argument for a, a substantial base of, of logical first principle knowledge that would lead us to the direction of saying, you know what, there's probably something to this. And if right. you add that to my clinical, uh, you know, the clinical evidence, then it becomes even stronger. Yeah, there's likely something to this, um, whereby the idea that we're throwing this out and the idea that, you know, you injure yourself and all I'm going to do is hand you a manual telling you that, you know, you'll be fine and hurt doesn't equal harm. Not that that's not important. Not that that's not a, an amazing addition to therapy. And, and again, we're not, it's huge when it comes to pain management, right? Huge. huge. And we, and I we're talking about something different. We're talking about, you know, tissue based outcomes and how can we make that tissue more optimal for function, for movement, for activity, which later may give you the set, the side effect of decreased pain. You know what I mean? Like, of that, course. that's really what we're going for. I, I tell our, our, our students often that your, your main objective is to, is to normalize that person's anatomy. Right. When the anatomy is normal, you have a better chance of that person using their anatomy in such a way that promotes a reduction of pain. That's not to say that we have to ignore all of the other things. And, and we do have to get this hurt versus harm and all of these things are not um, ignored in any way, but to ignore, you know, the stuff that we've, we've talked about today with regards to helping this system along in the healing process. I, I think that it's a, it's a dramatic error um, right. in, 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 uh, in manual therapy. Actually, now that you mentioned that, there, there's a study that I think Langevin did this again with the thoracolumbar fascia. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember this study where they, they looked at uh, chronic low back patients and, um, she she showed that there was an increase fibrosis in the um, thoracolumbar fascia layers, right? So there's a three layers. There's increased fibrosis within those layers, causing decrease in relative motion between those three layers. Mm -hmm. And um, recently, there was a study done that showed that um, chronic low back patients um, have a there's an increase in uh, activity if the sympathetic nervous system, there's a lot of neurological receptors within the thoracolumbar fascia. And so there might be a relation between the you know, fibrotic tissue in the thoracolumbar fascia and the fact that the patient has chronic um, low back pain because you're getting somehow a, um, a stimulation of those receptors from the disorganized fibrotic tissue within the, the fascia itself. Yeah, it's like if we had a room full of all these people, I, I don't see why anyone's disagreeing on anything. It seems to me that, like I said, first principle knowledge leads you to, 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 to the conclusions as we've stated. Um, so again, but we're keeping in mind that this is a, the, the day and age of, of uh, Instagram and people trying to get more likes. So I, I don't, I don't know if, if this is an, a real argument in people's minds, or if it's a, you know, just one that's pushed on the social media 
realms to get attention or or what but i do feel like if this is actual actually people's uh, beliefs that we're we're throwing the, the baby away with the bathwater here and mm -hmm. we're making very strong conclusions um that would you know stimulate some people to disregard um something that has quite a bit of uh, i mean we do things with less evidence we do other things with less evidence than what we have right. for soft tissue work i mean way less evidence than we have um for well, soft people to, to think you know a little bit differently from from you know what we talked about today mm, I, I hope so i mean it will necessitate that they listen to the entire however many hours we've been on um which which I, I I don't I don't think that the same people will be listening to the entire conversation, but let's hope that they do in some way. But anyway, John, uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Um, we're gonna do this again, maybe um, talking more about the clinical outcomes and the the clinical process of, of soft tissue therapy. Uh, but perfect, Dr. John Staratziotis, I thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, talk soon. Talk soon.